First Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Hey, church. I want to say that I'm thankful for you being here. I'm thankful for everyone online. As we continue to be a community that is persistent, that encourages one another, and that doesn't quit. As we talk about hope, that is what is countercultural. That no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, we continue to serve each other, we continue to provide meals, we keep uh, committing to meeting together, studying scripture, fellowshipping, and that is what makes us a people of hope. And that's what we're continuing our series on today as we talk about noticing hope in each other, but then also how we respond to people noticing hope in us. And so first, I will be talking about why will people ask? What do people notice about your faith? Jeremy will follow me in talking about what is our answer, and then Sean will talk about our response to that. But in this moment, I want you to think about what you notice in someone else's faith. So if you're here, if you're online, go ahead and close your eyes for a few seconds. Don't lie, God is watching. Just go ahead and close your eyes. And picture someone that you look up to in their faith. What strikes you about this person? What are ways that they've impacted you? What are some of the ways that they follow Jesus and that impressed on you the same ethic, the same values that Jesus has? All right, go ahead and open up your eyes. I don't want you falling asleep during the sermon. Uh, that wouldn't be good. But what were some of these values? What were some of the things that they did? What were some of the ways that they honored God and honored others in their lives? What were the ways that they served? I would assume that they were always encouraging. I would assume that they were high in hope, that their first words out of their mouth weren't criticism, that they weren't anxious, but they inspired you to be more like God and to love other people, to be more like Jesus. And that's what we're talking about today, is we're talking about what it looks like to notice, notice hope in our faith. So what do you notice about people's faith? Is it correction? Is it anxiety? Is it criticism? Well, sadly, that's how a lot of the world has defined the Christian faith and the church. And sadly, that's not good enough. And that's not what Jesus, that's not what Paul, that's not what uh, we're, we're called to be and the presence that we're called to be in our world. In 1 Peter, the passage that we just read, Peter assumes that people will ask us about the hope that we have in Jesus. Now, this draws a couple of questions that we have. One, are people assuming that about us? Are people asking about the hope that we have? If not, then what kind of presence do we have in the world individually? But then second of all, what draws that kind of inspiration? What gives us that encouragement to be people of hope in our lives today? What are people noticing about our faith if they're noticing it at all? 
People will only ask us about our faith if we're modeling it both inside and outside of the church. Sharing the gospel message isn't just limited to what's happening behind the pulpit or the evangelism that we have out in the streets of the world. It's also between your brothers and sisters here uh, in Christ. And sometimes that's the exchanging of hope. I like to say that hope is the main currency of our faith. When people are trying to notice, when hopefully when people notice our faith, it's about the hope that we have in something greater. It's the hope that we have in someone uh, whose life, ministry, death, and resurrection has prevailed all, has overcome all. Some of the thoughts that Kevin just shared with us uh, in, our, in our thoughts for communion. All throughout Acts and the epistles, Paul has called the church and people of Christ to imitate Christ, to imitate Jesus. And this is what fulfills the law and brings salvation. I love these letters that he writes to the Corinthian church because they're very prevalent to our world today. First and second Corinthians aren't just books that we can leave in the first century and just disregard as ancient documents. No, Paul spent a year and a half building up this church, establishing its leaders, and giving it some function and form of what it looks like to do New, New Testament or New Testament, first century Christianity, uh, but then he hears what other people are noticing about their faith and the way that they do church and the way that they hold relationships with each other in the outside world, and they're being noticed for the wrong reasons. In fact, Paul senses a massive disturbance in the force. <laughs> Thank you. I, I had to get one kind of nerdy comment out there. And he says that that's not good enough. And so time and time again, Paul will address relationships and he will sum up the gospel time and time again because he knows that people like us don't get the point uh, first, right? It takes one, two, and three different times. And there's a reason why Paul only addresses what happens in the church assembly, in the church auditorium, one, in one or two chapters. The rest of it is all about the relationships that we have with other people. In fact, the problems that are happening in the Corinthian church are issues that we see in the world today. When it's division, when it's, uh, what can the church, what can Christians be involved in, and what can't they be in because it looks bad on us? Or sex, uh, immorality, things like that. And he's saying that we're called to something greater and a love that's supposed to encourage us in hope, demeanor, and action. Paul had zeal for restoring people and their faith to the community. So let's dig into a little bit of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31 to the first verse of 11. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And he has his mic drop moment here. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. To him, that's the bottom line. And so what are some practical tips? What are ways that we have hope and we seek healing in the relationships and in the world around us. What will people notice about our faith? And I think we have this kind of outline here as Paul talks about restoring relationships. Because for Paul, sin is the breaking down of those relationships, both with our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. And here he's talking about bringing those relationships uh, and making them whole again. He says, one, one seeks to serve God and other people. This is the way we should conduct our relationships. And this way, will be noticed for the faith that we have and the hope that we have in that faith. Two, one seeks God's glory in everything. And three, one seeks salvation, not offense, which is fantastic because he's talking to both Christian Christians and Jewish Christians here that have different kind of beliefs, and he says, your faith doesn't trample on other people. It's actually not there for criticism. It's there to bring people closer to Christ and closer to each other. And then finally, one seeks to imitate Jesus, which seems super easy, but it's not just about conduct. 
It's about our faithfulness to Jesus and, and the way that he uh, conducts us to act on the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. It's, it's our life-changing perspective. And going back into 1 Peter 3, Peter reminds us that we are living a life that inspires hope and healing. As we seek to serve God and others and imitate Jesus, we will be people defined by something totally different than what the world is, what the world values, and what the world is striving for. If we do this correctly, people will see us act out a message that is consistent with the beliefs that we have. That's why one of the most poignant scriptures in all of the New Testament and all of Jesus' teachings, I believe, is that people will know that we're disciples of Jesus by our love for each other. John 13, 35. Are we defined by that love? Are you defined by that love? And if you're not, that may be a reason why people are focusing and noticing the wrong thing. Over these past few months, I hope that you've had highlights in your faith and the ways that you've served and the ways that you've encouraged other people and inspired this hope. Our world has so many reasons to be downcast, to be disregarded, to be upset, to be anxious, to be worried. It's an unprecedented world. But yet, we're called to be people of peace that lead with hope. When I think of why people are asking about our hope, I think of this challenge that I've found difficult, but I also share this challenge with you, to be a source of hope and not anxiety. That's what I hope that we are. That's what I hope the Edmund Church of Christ is. That's what I hope all Christians are in the world today that as people are freaking out, yelling out, attacking out, there will be people of peace instead of ones of criticism, instead of ones of dominance, that we follow Jesus' steps in serving, of caring for those that are marginalized, caring for those that are overlooked. And as we talk about how we respond to that, that's something of what Jeremy will be sharing with us in the words that we choose and the message that we have in response to when people ask about the hope that we have. Again, 1 Peter 3.15 reminds us, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Be prepared to give an answer. John reminds us, they're not going to ask about your hope-filled life if your life is characterized by anxiety. They're only going to ask if your life is a life characterized by a God-centered hope. That's going to look different in an anxious world. So when they ask, what do we say? What is our response when people ask about the hope that we have? I distinctly remember an experience that I had whenever I was in college. I was an intern for a church, and we were going on a mission trip to Chicago. And our goal was to serve at uh, different homeless, homeless shelters. And our prayer the whole summer leading up to that was, God, give us opportunities to talk about our faith. I had prayed multiple times God, help me to have opportunities to talk about Jesus. Make it clear, make it obvious, help me have opportunities to talk about Jesus. So literally the first day that we're serving, I sit down to uh, a meal with a gentleman. We talk for a little while. He finishes his meal, and I'm about to clear his plate for him. And then he asks, I I forgot to ask, who are you here with? I said, well, I'm, I'm here with the church. And he said, good. I have heard about Jesus, but I don't know much about him. When you get back, will you tell me about him? Sometimes God answers prayer really subtly. 
And sometimes he just makes it so glaringly obvious that you just can't miss it. And inside, as I grab this man's plate and I'm walking in slow motion to throw it away because I realize that I have prayed for something, but then I have not thought about what I was going to say if God answered that prayer, right? I moved in slow motion thinking, God, pro provide the words. Help, help me know what I need to say. Help me to be able to share the hope that I have. If we're going to be hope-filled people and we expect people to ask, we need to think through what our answer is going to be. It needs to be clear. It needs to be concise. It needs to be compelling. It needs to be a message that inspires hope in other people. The best answer that I have heard, at least one that has stuck with me the longest, actually comes from a tragic story. Um, it's a story told by Josh Ross. He's a minister in Tennessee, but uh, as he shares his faith story, this is part of his faith story experience. Um, and it deals with the loss of his sister. And this portion of the story is really more about his parents' experience. Josh's sister was young. She was, I think she was in her 20s when she got sick. Goes into the hospital. Doctors can't figure out what's going on. She passes away. And we can only imagine uh, what that experience is like for her parents. And as they are about to walk out of the hospital, they're about to walk into a world that will look familiar, but nothing about that world is the same as how they left it. Josh's mom stops his dad and says, before we go out there, I need you to remind me what we believe. That's a, that's a powerful question. That's, that's powerful that she thought, I need to be grounded. I need to remember where our hope lies. No doubt she's got questions for God. No doubt she has frustrations. And she says, I need you to help me remember what we believe. And Josh's father pauses for a second and reflects and then gives an answer that doesn't come just in that moment but comes from lots of time reflecting on his faith. And his answer to his wife who was hurting and reaching for answers was simple, but it was powerful. His response was, the tomb is empty. We believe the tomb is empty. What a powerful faith statement. What a powerful reminder of where our hope lies, what grounds us in a world that's pulling us in a million directions. Where do we find a lasting hope that goes beyond our circumstances? Well, we find it in an empty tomb. For the Ross family and for all Christians, we must remind ourselves that we find, we find hope, we find a lasting hope in an empty tomb and a resurrected Savior. Earlier in the book of 1 Peter, Peter reminds us of that hope that we have in Jesus. We'll read a little chunk of scripture here. The word hope is going to appear a couple times, but I just want you to let this kind of wash over you as we read it. I want you to hear all of the things that inspire hope, and all of these things come out of the fact that Jesus isn't dead. All of these things come out of a hope that is inspired by a resurrected Savior. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power 
until the coming of the salvation that is ready to, to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You can see hope there. Four, you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter reminds us that our hope is in a resurrected Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He does fulfill those prophecies. He does live a perfect life, a holy life. He was killed for our sins, and he did conquer death in his resurrection, but it doesn't stop there. Part of our hope is the fact that he promises resurrection to us too, to all those who believe in him. Where does our hope come from? It's not from an ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not from my ability to reason. It's not from my ability to read or interpret scripture or pray more. Our hope is in a resurrected Savior. Our hope is in an empty tomb. You know this doesn't mean that life will be filled with a simple life with no trials. Verse 6 reminds us of that. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Right now, we're keenly aware that life will throw a lot of things at us that are difficult. Loss of loved ones, loss of income. For some people, it's losing children or even losing uh, children that leave the faith. Right? Pain in relationships, the list could go on and on, the trials that we experience in this life. But none of those trials take away the fact that the tomb is empty. None of our circumstances can take away the fact that the tomb is empty. Jesus isn't in there anymore. That means Jesus is sovereign. That means Jesus is in control. That also means that we have hope for our own resurrection. The end of that passage says, You will be receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We find hope not only in a resurrected Jesus, but the promise of our own resurrection with Jesus when he returns. Where do we find our hope? It's, it's not in my own ability to justify myself. It's not in my own ability to reason. It's not in my own ability to read, interpret scripture, pray, be holy. Our hope is in an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. One more time. Our hope is in an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. Nothing can take that away from us. We must hold to that no matter what, and it inspires hope that is enduring. That is the what that we tell people. That is the reason for our hope. Sean is going to address how we tell people about the hope that we have. In 1962, America and Russia walked right up to the line of nuclear conflict. 
And it wasn't until sometime later that we found out how close we actually came. Cuban Missile Crisis was going on at the time, and the American fleet found out that there was a Russian B-59 submarine patrolling off the coast of Cuba. So the US Navy sent out seven ships to find this submarine. They, they cruised around, but this submarine went to such a depth that they couldn't find him, spent days trying to find this submarine. And then after a while, they decided they were going to drop depth charges to try to force this submarine to surface, to try to find this sub. The, the bad part about that is they were in international waters at the time. So the commander of this submarine Days and days cut off from any communication from Moscow because of how deep they were submerged. For a while, they'd been able to pick up US uh, radio traffic, but they hadn't been able to get that for a while either. He started putting two and two together and said, if they're dropping depth charges in international waters, then that means that we are at war. And if the US and Russia are at war, it is a nuclear war. And it is my job as the commander of a submarine that has a nuclear uh, warhead to respond with all of the force that I have at my disposal. He decided that it was time for him to use his nuclear weapon. He had to have two other people sign off on that. First was his political officer. He went into the political officer and said, here's the situation, here's what we need to do. They had a long conversation about it and eventually the political officer said, I agree, it's time for us to, to get in the fight, it's time for us to do this. They had one other person that they needed to convince. Vasily Arkhipov. They go to Arkhipov. They explain everything to him. And Arkhipov says, no, we don't have enough information. We don't know what's going on here. We don't know the full story. We can't respond with this significant of an attack. The truth is the crew members even later reported that this interaction was so heated that it became physical. Arkhipov had the role. He also had a lot of capital because he was in some ways considered one of the heroes of the K-19 situation that happened the year before. And many people refer to Arkhipov as the man that saved the world. Because if they had launched that, if they had fired that nuclear weapon, then the US probably would have responded in kind and Moscow probably would have responded in kind as well. And who knows what would have happened at that point. It's a really powerful story. And the main reason that I share it with you is because Arkhipov chose hope over fear. And as we have these conversations, as we talk with people in all of our interactions, I want us to choose hope over fear. I want to share another story with you. This one comes from John 8. Jesus is teaching, sharing his message, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law bring a woman to him that has been caught in adultery. It leaves an obvious question that only the woman was present, but we won't go there. But he, uh, they, they bring this woman to him, and they say, teacher, the law says we're supposed to kill this woman. What do you say? What, what should we do? And Jesus' response is to, he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. The, the author doesn't, doesn't share that with us. But what the author does share is the profound response that Jesus gives. He says, whoever here is without sin, go for it. 
start us off. If you're perfect, go for it. Cast the first stone. And then one by one, whether these guys were convicted by what he said, or whether they just realized that their ploy to trap Jesus, which it specifically says they were trying to trap him, they just realized their ploy hadn't worked, one by one, they fade away. Until the only person left standing there is Jesus, who is actually the only sinless person, who could have been the person that threw that stone. He says, where did everybody go? I don't condemn you either. And then he says, go and leave your life of sin. There's a couple of things that I want to take away from this interaction that Jesus has that I want us to, a lens that I want us to look at our interactions when we have these difficult conversations, maybe difficult conversations with people. The first thing that happens here is Jesus does not respond out of a place of ego. When we talk about our faith, when we talk about our hope, when we talk about things that are so core to our identity, some of these conversations are very easy, but many of them are very difficult. But Jesus crouches down and writes in the dirt. This is not a position of uh, dominance. He tries to communicate without doing that from a place of ego. And I think it's useful for us to look at it through that lens. The second thing that Jesus does is he sees a human being standing in front of him. He doesn't see a trap. He doesn't see an object lesson. He sees a person, a broken person, a sinner, just like he sees when he looks in every direction. He sees somebody that needs him. And we need to remember that whoever we're talking to about our faith, about our hope, that there's a person there. And that person has hopes, and that person has heartbreaks. And often, if we really want to communicate where we're coming from, our first job is to listen to them and hear where they're coming from before we can truly share our hope with them. The next thing Jesus does is he doesn't water down the message. He doesn't end this by saying, woman, you were just a, you were just a ploy for them to try to trap me. Go back to your life. No big deal. It was no problem. He doesn't say that everything was okay. He does say, change your life. Take the sin out of your life. Do better. Be more than you are now. He doesn't pretend everything was fine. And we need to remember that as well. Sometimes it's easy for us to soft sell parts of our message and parts of the things that we're communicating. And the last thing Jesus does that is so incredibly important here is within the context of those other three things, he finds the most merciful, the most kind, the most loving, and the most hopeful way he can communicate to somebody. And he treats that person standing in front of him in that way. It's my hope that we will do all those things, that we will follow Jesus's model as we interact with people and as we have these conversations that may be really difficult at times that we keep those things in mind. Vasily Arkhipov may be the man that saved the world, but Jesus, 2,000 years before that, saved humanity, saved our souls, gave us the opportunity for eternal life. If you're in a spot where you are right with Jesus, then that is a wonderful thing. And if you need prayers in any way, then we ask you to, uh, if you're at home, go on our website and let us know. If you're here, you can communicate those to us. 
If you need help in any way, then communicate those things to us. If you're here with us and you need to put on Christ in baptism, then we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.